Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, I talk to author Philippe Sands about his new book, The Ratline, which tells the story of Nazi fugitive Baron Otto von Vector. Philippe is a barrister who's been involved in prosecuting war crimes in the Balkans, in Rwanda and in several other countries. His previous book, the award-winning East-West Street, was about the origins of human rights law in the Holocaust. While researching for East-West Street, uh, Philippe met Horst Vector, who is the son of the Nazi fugitive Otto. That meeting led to Philippe creating a podcast for the BBC about Otto's life, which he also narrates. And in this short clip from that podcast, it is 1942 and the Vector family are at their summer house. The Baron can't be with them this summer. It's a shame, but he's much too occupied with his work 700 miles away in a place called Lemberg, which used to be called Louvouf. In a letter to his wife, he writes, There's a lot going on in Lemberg. He just doesn't have time to join his family, not right now, anyway. There is indeed a lot going on in Lemberg. Over the course of four months in 1942, Lemberg's Jewish population was steadily, swiftly and ruthlessly liquidated. Shot, hanged or sent to Belzech, a nearby extermination camp, where they were gassed. As you will hear, Philippe has a personal as well as professional interest in the story of Otto Vector. His own grandfather's family were Jewish and lived in Lemberg until they were murdered by Nazis during World War II. Philippe spoke to me recently via Zoom from his home in London. Philippe Sands, you're very welcome to the podcast. I am delighted to join you. Perhaps you could tell me first how your path crossed with the path of Otto Vector. It was an accident, uh, like so much in life. Um, it really begins 10 years ago. I'll give you the short version. Uh, I got an invite to go to this strange Ukrainian city of Lviv. Um, I worked out it was actually once called Lemberg. It's where my grandfather was from. And I decided to go and visit. I was invited to give a lecture on the cases that I do on crimes against humanity and genocide. I prepared a lecture, I uncovered some strange coincidences about the characters who invented those two concepts. And in the months that followed, once I started writing a book, I came across a character called Hans Frank, who'd been Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer, and who was the Governor General of Occupied Poland. And I met his son, uh, Nicholas Frank, who I wrote about in East West Street. And at one point, Early on in our conversation, Nicholas said, you know, they're not all like me. I hate my dad. You are interested in Lemberg. Would you like to meet the guy, the guys, the son of the guy who was the governor of Lemberg, uh, Otto Vechter? I said, sure, but why would he want to meet me? He said, yeah, you'll, you'll be surprised. He's a nice guy, but he has different views from me. He thinks his father's a great guy. Uh, and so I was introduced to Horst Vechter, who lives in Austria, 
uh, and the Vector family came bouncing into my life in about 2011, and they're still there 10 years later. Reading the book, in fact, listening to the podcast first and, and now reading the book, it reminds me of a kind of a epiphany I had, I think, when I was in my teens, when I first became aware of the Holocaust and what had happened. Um, and it was that realisation, very startling at the time, that the people who did this were people like you and me. They lived in a society that was very much like the one that you and I grew up in uh, for most intents and purposes to all appearances. They lived very similar lives. And then they did these abominable, atrocious, unbelievable things. And in the years since then, I've, I've kind of always bridled at this characterization of the people who carried out the Holocaust as monsters or outside the pale or, or cartoon criminals of some sort. And one of the things that's so powerful about the book is you paint a vivid picture of uh, Otto and his family and their story. And in many ways, they're, they're very attractive people. They're very vivacious, very exciting. They have very interesting lives. And yet they are responsible for these terrible, terrible things. Absolutely. That is just absolutely spot on, Hugh. Um, I came across that with first with Nick Frank and came to the terrible realisation that actually if I'd have had dinner with his father, Hans Frank, we'd have had a really interesting time. We'd have had an interesting conversation. We would have talked about law. We would have talked about culture. We would have talked about politics. We would have disagreed. But, but he was a highly educated, highly cultured, regular sort of guy who you would have had a decent conversation with. And it's the same thing precisely with the Vechters. And I think I've become fascinated with that. I grew up in a household where we were from the other side of the story. My mother was born in Vienna in 1938. She moved to Paris when she was one year old. She was saved, as I describe, in East West Street by an extraordinary lady, Elsie Tilney, evangelical Christian missionary. I owe my life, my existence to that lady. And we were always sort of painted on the victim side. So we never really thought about the other side. And my encounters with Nick Frank and, and Horst Wächter just introduced me to the regularity of day-to-day life. And in particular with the Ratline, which is based on the papers of Horst's mother, Charlotte, who for me, I've got to say, is the beating heart of the book, actually. She is the, the character I'm most fascinated about. Because I've always asked myself the question, rather as, as you've done, OK, so these guys are out there doing their stuff, killing hundreds of thousands of people, but they're a regular folk also. But what about the wives? What about the people they come home to at the end of each day, have dinner with, go to parties with, go on holidays with, have their children with, what were they like? And my gratitude to Horst is that he gave me total access to his mother's archive. And we have, I think, for the first time, I think it's the first time it's happened, a total picture, a complete picture of life at the top Nazi table from the perspective of a couple throughout the entire period, 1929 to 1949. I mean, you are very you remain very sympathetic to Horst throughout the book, although you can, one could see at points. I mean, he's a very, 
he's a very frustrating character. You know, the evidence <laughs> is there in front of his face about what his what his father actually did, and there's a there's a kind of a duality in the story, which I think has been expressed in films previously between himself and Nicholas Frank. You mentioned Nicholas Frank um, famously said that he was opposed to the death penalty, with the one exception of his father, which is. Uh, pretty much exactly the opposite of where where Horst is at. But what Horst does give you, despite that that strange obtuseness about the facts in front of his face, is is the openness and he gives you the documents and he gives you the evidence that nobody else could give you or probably would give you. It's a very complex relationship. Um, We met in the end of 2011, beginning 2012, and we've, you know, had... ups and downs, stops and starts, but essentially we've both been very honest with each other. We, When we disagree, we share those disagreements openly, and I think we both actually like each other at a human level. There was a moment when we were filming together for a BBC documentary where Nicholas describes Horst as a new Nazi, which I don't think he is. I do not believe that he's a Nazi. I think he's just trying to find the good in his father in an honourable, misguided sort of way. Um, and Horst got very upset with Nicholas for doing that and as a result they basically haven't spoken since but I'm in touch uh, with both of them and Horst said to me look I'm not a Nazi I said I know you're not a Nazi he said how can I prove it I said well what you could do you've been very open with me already but I haven't had access to your mother's papers your father's letters the papers the diaries why don't you give them to a museum why don't you make them publicly available? You say there's nothing to hide. You're totally open. Give them to a museum. He said, you know what? It's a terrific idea. I'm going to do that. And then everyone can read them and form their own view. And that's what he did. And at no point in 10 years have I asked Horst for a document. And he said to me, no, you can't have that. Or no, it doesn't exist. He's been utterly and totally open. To, for, for me to understand Horst, and the reason I do feel an empathy for him is I think that he too, in a sense, is a victim. He's a damaged person. He was born in 1939. His father was literally at the top Nazi table. I mean, appointed personally to positions by Adolf Hitler, uh, top rank right under Himmler, who was a close friend of his. Many of his uh, friends and colleagues were hanged at the famous Nuremberg trial. So he was really right at the very top. And... um, Horst lived the life of a prince until he was six years old. And then in 1945, his world collapsed. It all disappeared literally from one day to the next. And there was a moment when we were talking about that and he was describing to me his sixth birthday party in April 1945. And it's the first time and one of the rare times where, as he was describing to me, the collapse of his life as a child and everything was lost, where he wept and I can't get that moment out of my mind. It, it built in me a sense of real empathy and understanding that to understand Horst, you have to work out that essentially he's trying to rebuild the life that he had at that point. He knows terrible things were being done. He knows his father was involved in terrible things, does not accept that his father was a criminal, but somehow is reliving that moment of loss for the last 75 years. Is there any way in the fact that um, Otto Vector uh, and his family were Austrian rather than German inflects the way in which we think about this story? I'm not really totally across this myself, but I'm just wondering. We know that Germany 
in the about 20 or 30 years after the war, went through quite a painful period of soul-searching and a, a generation came through who asked questions about what their parents had done that hadn't been asked previously. Uh, am I right in saying that that didn't happen quite to the same extent in, in Austria? You're absolutely right. I, I mean, this is not a matter that can be sort of proven objectively, but my hunch is that one of the reasons that Nicholas and Horst have taken different paths is that Nicholas has lived in a German environment where there was a relatively early engagement with what happened. I mean, no country has engaged with its past as Germany has. I mean, Britain has not engaged with its own past, for example, in relation to slavery, in relation to colonialism, in relation to Ireland. There has been no reckoning. There's been, I as a kid growing up at school, we were not taught about slavery, we were not taught about colonialism, we were not taught about what the British did in Ireland. Whereas Germany, for Nicholas's generation, lived it. By contrast, Austria, famously from the 1950s, was treated in the uh, agreement that gave Austria its independence again in 1955 as Hitler's first victim. And so Horst grew up in a generation where they could position themselves as victims of Nazism. Whereas, in fact, if you look at who the most willing executioners were, many of them were Austrians. If you look at who was at the famous Nuremberg trial, there were three or four Austrians out of the 22 defendants. And um, Austrian Nazis were absolutely deeply implicated. And as I describe uh, in the Ratline, in the case of the Wächter family itself, Otto was deeply implicated from the beginning. I mean, Otto joins the Nazi party, I think, you know, sort of in 1923 or something. And by 1930s, he's in the SS. He's involved in the assassination of the Austrian chancellor. He escapes. He goes to Germany. uh, And then he becomes fully integrated under the wing of Himmler. So the idea that somehow the Wächters are victims of Nazism... Um, is a travesty. Uh, And yet the Austrian narrative allowed that to be told. And of course, one of the funny things that happened, I mean, there there is a bit of humour in the book because so many funny things happen. Um, To carry on in the story much later on in life, Horst lives in Salzburg with his mum, who's running a a language school. Uh, and uh, House Wartenberg, it is called. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do the podcast before the book was that I had the suspicion that people would come out of the woodwork, that that, 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 the information that I hadn't got would arrive. And lo and behold, the podcast is broadcast two years ago, and I start getting emails and phone calls from people now in their 60s and 70s who stayed at House Wartenberg in the 1960s and the 1970s. They went as English language students to study with Frau Wächter, the Baroness, as she liked to call herself. And they they said it was so sweet. They said, we were listening to this podcast and we suddenly realised we knew this lady and we had no effing idea that <laughs> she was so high up in the Nazis. She would just talk about the war with sadness. She'd talk about her wonderful husband. He was killed in the war. And they knew absolutely nothing about what had happened. So I think Horst grew up in that environment. And many Austrians grew up in that environment, exactly as you describe it. Can we, without falling into the trap of apologism, can we 
try and understand to some extent or put ourselves in the shoes of these people. They're both quite, you know, upper class, well got in Austrian society. The, they're coming of age in the early 1920s when Austria has been reduced to a, a rump state after the collapse of the of the empire. Um, this young man gets involved in this far-right radical revolutionary politics, as you say, very early in the early 1920s and is then involved in, you know, an attempted coup which ends up in a murder of the of the chancellor. He has to go on the run. Um, is there any extent to which we can understand that sort of behaviour in the context of the 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 devastation of Europe in the first, uh, in the second decade of the of the 20th century and being a consequence yes. of that to some extent. Yes, I think absolutely. It's it's under it's not justifiable, but it's understandable. I mean, Austria went from being effectively a global superpower, a huge empire, to a rump state in the space of weeks. That is coupled with a vast influx of refugees from the east, from their former territories, into Vienna. Most of them are Jews, and they're very poor Jews. And all of a sudden, this wealthy, fabulous society, you know, the place of Freud and Mahler and art and culture and money and the emperor and the opera house and so on and so forth, is an impoverished, weakened country. And in those circumstances, the hatreds begin. The hatreds are incipiently there, actually. I mean, one of the things that's very surprising for me is perhaps not so much on the Otto side. He comes... Uh, they're sort of a middle-class family. They're not wealthy. His father's a military man, um, so part of the establishment. Certainly not impoverished, but but not, not rich either. On the other hand, Charlotte comes from a vastly wealthy family. Her father is an industrialist. He's a steelmaker. He's actually made a lot of money in the war because uh, they've made armaments and spades and various bits and pieces. And where does her anti-Semitism come from? Where does her hatred come from? And that is much more complicated to explain, but it plainly comes from teachings in their community. It comes possibly also from teachings of their own churches. Um, and it's it's a complex area and it's a painful area to look at. I can understand it more easily in the case of Otto. For Charlotte, who had a life of plenty, I mean, look at her, she's 18 years old, she gets sent to an English boarding school. She spends a year at Eastbourne. She's living the life of plenty. She's going to theatre in London. She's going to the National Gallery. She's, she knows how to drive. She goes off to Oxford. She goes off to the West Country, to Devon. She has many English friends. Her headmistress is Arthur Conan Doyle's sister. You know, you just couldn't invent it. So where does the hatred come from? How does someone like that get caught up in mass killing and turn a blind eye to it or worse, become complicit in it? And that's a really worrisome question because it raises the question, what would I do? What would you do? Can we put our hands on our hearts and really say there are no circumstances in which that wouldn't happen? And I think the answer is no, we can't. And and it's... I would say it's almost certain that the the upper middle class young women in England with whom she socialised in the in those days, many of them would have harboured very similar anti-Semitic sentiments at the time, for example. Well, I, it's interesting. I, I mean, because I've got all her papers, I did have a look at some of the names that were in them. You know, she would get people to write little essays or little sentences. And so you could start to track down what happened to people. And I don't, I, I don't get the sense that Granville Lodge or whatever it was called in Eastbourne was a sort of, you know, 
cesspit of racism and anti-Semitism. It was a, seems more like a sort of middle-class type of place. She'd go off to church once a week. She'd go off to London. She'd nip off and do naughty things 18-year-olds do. I think she brought it with her from Ostrich. She fell in love with England. I mean, if you fast forward, there's that wonderful entry in one of her letters to her husband in late 1944, when the war's going wrong, when she writes to Otto, who's off in Italy somewhere by then, and she says, God, this is all terrible. Why couldn't we form an alliance with the British? They're so wonderful. They're so nationalistic. Why can't we be in a union with them and take on the Soviets? I suppose she says, it's the Jews. They're always mixing things up and stopping all the right things from happening. And you just think to yourself, where on earth is that coming from in relation to her world vision of, you know, what Churchill's up to, what the Brits are up to, what the Americans are up to? Um, It's very hard. I, I mean, I think if you adopt a rational, try to understand it as a rational way of thinking, it's impossible to do so. These are deeply emotional people they're deeply ideological people um, and they have views ingrained in them um, that have been there from childhood and that are never shaken off. I mean, I think the relevance of the conversation we're having right now, of course, is that we stand potentially on the cusp of the worst recession the world will have seen since 1929. And I have to say, my mind has turned to the question, what if it really goes belly up? I mean, what if the barriers you know, come up, the walls go up, and Europe retreats once more into itself. Uh, you can see it, um, uh, sort of nationalist sentiment rising, pointing the finger of blame, where's this coronavirus come from? We've got to protect ourselves against the others. Um, it wouldn't take very long, I suspect, for these deep-seated hatreds to reappear. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit about what Otto actually did? I mean, because he was posted during the war, first to Krakow and then to Lvov or Lemberg, as it, as it was called at the time. These are areas in the right in the middle of what the um, the historian Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands, the place where the vast majority of the genocide um, took place. And he was very central, first in Krakow. He set up the, the, the ghetto there, the walled ghetto in Krakow, and was responsible uh, I think you make clear in the book for certain atrocities. And then uh, in what is now Western Ukraine, where hundreds of thousands, if not many millions of, of Jews and others um, were slaughtered. How central was he to all that? He was absolutely central. He was not a foot soldier. I mean, you know, we, I, I have the document. He personally authorised the construction of the Krakow ghetto, the ghetto into which... Um, you know, Roman Polanski and others were, and in which tens of thousands of people were sent. Um, He was responsible for the marking of people, of Jews and of others. Uh, He was responsible for locking up Polish intellectuals, uh, deporting them. Um, Even before you get to that period, I mean, if you just take his history, he comes back to Vienna in 1938 on March the 15th, He's been away for four years because he's been involved in the killing of the Austrian Chancellor. He stands on the Heldenplatz with Hitler. I mean, literally right up there with Hitler. Uh, He then gets a first job in Vienna 
38 to 39. What's his job? He's a state secretary, and his job is to rid the uh, public sector of Jews and other undesirables. And uh, as you know, you've read the book, I was sort of astonished to discover that he's even targeting his own teachers at the university, at the law faculty. The dean of his law school, he removes the guy from his job, and within a year, the guy's dead. Uh, sent off to some camp. Uh, I think he's sent to Theresienstadt, where he, where he perishes. Um, he then is sent on the decision of, um, of Hitler to become governor of Krakow, living in the city of Krakow, where he sets up the ghetto, takes direct actions against um, Polish intellectuals, and of course is involved directly in the first act of reprisal killing. Hitler orders, I mean, two Germans are killed about 40 kilometers from Krakow, a town called Bochnia, and Hitler orders a reprisal killing, 25 Poles for every uh, German who's been killed, and he oversees that act of execution, which is the first act of execution. And of course, I'm a litigator, I don't give up giving documents. I see somewhere there are photographs of that and I spend four years trying to track down the photographs. I don't want to give away too much, but I find the photographs. Those photographs, I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty steady. They shocked me. From, from Krakow, he then goes to District Galicia, where he is uh, involved in the deportation of half a million people who are uh, executed. So he is right at the very top table. If he had been caught, there is no question he would have been uh, tried and he would have been sentenced to death. He would have been convicted of crimes against humanity and war crimes and various other horrors. There's just no ifs and buts about it. He's in exactly the same category. His closest friend and colleague, Arthur Seiss Inkvart, uh, who did no worse than him, uh, was one of the 22 defendants in the main Nuremberg trial with Goering, with Hans Frank, with others. Seiss Inkvart, incidentally, is Horst's godfather. Uh, and Horst goes to sleep every night in his bedroom with a photograph of his godfather hanging above his bed, um, which has taken me a bit of getting used to. Seiss Inkvart was convicted of crimes against humanity and war crimes and hanged at Nuremberg uh, back in '46. The same thing would have happened to Wächter. So he, he is absolutely top table, but of course, Wächter isn't caught. And of Wächter course, escapes. Otto and quite a lot of the other people you mentioned are lawyers, uh, as you are yourself. Um, and I wonder, is that one of the one of the things that um, drew you to these particular stories, the people that they were in, that they were in that particular profession, that um, that, that had some particular inflection for you? Well, it certainly had a particular inflection. I, I think I'd put it like this. It's not, it's not that I was sought them out because they were lawyers. But having discovered that they were lawyers, I was thinking, whoa, these are people like me. These are people who have been to the fabulous law schools, highly educated, highly professional, taught what independence means, taught what integrity means, taught what ethical standards means, know all about morality. How on earth are these people getting involved in it? I mean, remarkably, uh, Otto Wächter entered the University of Vienna on the same day as Hirsch Lauterpacht, the man who invented the concept of crimes against humanity. 
and whose entire family Wächter would in effect oversee the killing of 25 years later. I attended a very moving event in Vienna a few weeks ago. It was the centenary of Wächter and Lauterpach's entry into the law school in October 1919. So I think December 2019, we had had an event. I mean, it was just packed to the rafters, hundreds of students, hundreds of teachers, members of the public. How could it be that two young men enter the university? I mean, you live this, I live this. They come in, they enter university at the same time. One takes one path, the other takes another path. The one who takes the first path ends up killing the entire families of the guy who takes the other path. Can we imagine killing the families of one of our classmates? It's unimaginable, but it happened. And it just opens the doors to what the human is capable of doing. And of course, while all of this is going on, dear Mrs. Wächter is completely integrated into the whole thing. She knows exactly what is happening while she's bringing up the kids, cooking the meals. He's having affairs. She's thinking about having an affairs. He's off in the killing fields. She's going to the opera, going to the Salzburg Festival, describing the joys of poetry festivals and Mozart. At the very same time that hundreds of thousands of people are being killed by her husband. How do we square that? It's very difficult to understand. Interesting to hear hear you say that. I mean, do we underestimate the role of the, I suppose, what you might call the supporting cast in At Moments of Atrocity? Um, The wives, the people who don't actually go to the front line but maintain things on the domestic front, and the people who who don't pull the trigger but never stop anybody pulling the trigger? Well, I mean, I, I don't know what your um, you know partner situation is or not, but like me, I'm sure you know that a household is a special place. Mm-hmm. Uh, pe- people know and understand what goes on in the household. Um, it's very difficult to hide. You can hide some things, but you can't hide everything. And so one of the mysteries for me was um, what did the wife know? And what did she support? What did she turn a blind eye to? What did she engage in? Um, So I'm not partial to the theory propounded in the book Hitler's Willing Executioners. Um, You know, that everyone just turned a blind eye. I think people knew. Nor am I partial to the theory of Hannah Arendt about the banality of evil. It doesn't apply to Charlotte and Otto. They knew exactly what was going on. Um, it's not that they closed their eyes to it. It's not that they were unaware. It's not that they didn't ask questions. They knew precisely. They were actively engaged. And I think what I've wanted to do is open the lid to um, the sort of the household role in these acts of horror, because I sort of had a hunch that she must have known. I also had a hunch that actually Horst's love was not for his father, but for his mother, Mm -hmm. who brought him up, who looked after him when they were impecunious, living in real poverty, and to whom he devoted the rest of his life. Um, The rest of her life, he really looked after her. 
to the point that he was so close to his mum that his wife divorced him. And I think to understand Horst, to honour the father is a way of honouring the mother. It's the love of his mother. And that made me ask the question, what did she know? And of course, amidst all of the materials that Horst gave me, is his mother's diaries, his mother's letters, and these remarkable recordings. Um, you know, in the 1970s, Charlotta starts retracing the life of her beloved husband and going to meet his old comrades who are still alive and recording interviews with them. What was he like? What happened? You know, the good old days. Uh, I can happily you know, send you one and you can use it as a... I mean, it's incredible to listen to. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, and, and it's great radio stuff. And that was a lot of work. There were, uh, there were, I think, 14 tapes, all in German. My German isn't good enough to understand what she was saying. We had to, we had to tr transcribe it. We had to translate it. We had to interpret it, what she was saying. But there are just nuggets of lovely horribleness, you know, just when she's sitting with a real fascist journalist called Melita Wiedemann and they're toasting and drinking in the Four Seasons Hotel and, you know, one of them says, yes, I was a happy Nazi and the other one says, yes, and I still am. This is 1977. Mm. And you just, you just get the sense that she was a full-on player. She was totally on board the whole thing. And, and I think the other thing that is so striking, I mean, this is basically 10,000 pages of letters and diaries. At no point is there a hint of regret that dear Otto or the Fuhrer may have gone too far in some of the things that they did. Hmm. So that disturbed me a lot. She was absolutely fully fully involved in what happened. I mean, of course, we should say that, I mean, you come to this story, you come to Otto and Lotte with a very particular bank of knowledge anyway. You've, I'm guessing you've met other Ottos and other Lottes, or at least you've seen the consequences of their work and you've prosecuted them. Um, we think of this as a long time ago. These events, events of this sort continue to happen and have happened in the very recent past and are probably happening right now in places like Syria. Um, so you have a very particular type of expertise in this subject. Well, I've sat with and had cups of tea with mass murderers who are totally regular, decent folk when you're sitting having a cup of tea with them. I've met their partners. I've met their children. Um, I've had the experience, you know, a couple of months ago of doing a hearing in the International Court of Justice opposite Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm sitting here, she's sitting literally three feet from me, uh, arguing for her country, I'm arguing for the Gambia, and she stands up and she defends the indefensible, and she does it in a beautiful tone, using beautiful words, a very elegant and persuasive individual. And what you learn in my day job is that nothing is ever what it seems you have to scratch and you have to treat everything with an open mind and expect the unexpected things are never quite what they seem things are never only what they seem and and that's i suppose in the work that i do that's what i've come to understand 
And that cuts the other way. I mean, it would be very easy for me to pigeonhole someone like Horst and conclude, you know, this guy loves his dad. I don't want anything to do with him. He's a horrible person. But that's not how I feel about him. Uh, It's more complicated than that. I want to understand what he's been through. I want to understand why he adopts the position that he does. It was extremely important for me to ensure that in the rat line, he got to make his arguments. He got to tell his side of the story. He got to explain why he thought his father was a decent guy. And I don't impose my view on the reader. I let the reader form their own view. I mean, there's an element in which you're choosing what you say and where it's said and how you structure things, which, of course, lead a reader to a particular place. But I think as with the film and as with the podcast, there will be quite a number of people who are empathetic towards Horst. Um, and I don't blame him for the victims of the father, uh, for, for the sins of the father or the sins of the mother. Uh, and I keep an open mind about him and we, and we stay in touch still today. I mean, there's an ongoing debate. I, I can recall instances of in relation in the in the wake of the the troubles in Ireland, for example, where people struggle to understand people who've committed terrible acts, and in that understanding or in that attempt to understand, they're accused of sympathising. Um, and it's a it can be a challenge sometimes to differentiate between those two things. But as we were saying Absolutely. earlier, without understanding, we we have nothing. But how do we understand, or do we have the the moral framework? Um, or maybe the law would help us with this, to understand what is evil. Do you believe in such a thing as evil? I, I don't I don't believe in 100% evil. It comes back to what we were saying before. I, uh, I think you, you made the point that you're not comfortable characterising or listing, identifying someone only as a monster. Mm-hmm. And I completely, that's completely my position also. Otto Wächter was not a monster. Otto Wächter did monstrous things. He was also a father, uh, a husband, a lover, a son. And you see in some of the correspondence great sense of humanity um, and a sense of decency on certain things. People are not one-dimensional. We are all very complex. We have good sides and less good sides. And we try um, to control uh, those aspects of our character which are prone to cause harm particularly to others I'm I'm not comfortable characterizing these people purely as monsters now that's not to say they should not have an accounting for what they have done. And I think in part the reason that I've put so much time into this is that it troubles me greatly that people like Otto Wächter never got a day in court. Part of my project here is I want people to form a view as to what he did and did not do, to see the raw materials and to work it out for themselves. Until I came onto the scene, Otto Wächter had been airbrushed out of history. You won't find him in many of the books. There'd been a sort of um, pretty effective family project, I suspect, um, you know, of reconstituting him uh, in a better light. And part of that is House of Artenberg and the language school that Charlotte ran, where 
dozens of kids are going through that school every year and they have no idea. They just see the good side of the vectors. And there are good sides. Of course, there are good sides uh, to the vectors. So it's completely hidden. And I wanted to scratch that away and find out what was really there. The concern that I had, of course, was a question, what is my right to do that? I mean, there is, of course, the fact that ve the, the vectors, or Otto Vector, heaped a great deal of misery on my grandfather's family. In fact, he was probably responsible for killing my grandfather's entire family, um, apart from my grandfather. So there's a personal interest, but that doesn't give me the right um, to heap misery on the next generations of the Vechters. And I'm, I'm very conscious that I must behave correctly and respectfully of the next generations. And of course, the next generations, as you see right at the end of the book, because they begin to appear, um, come out of the woodwork. They start contacting me. Why are you doing this? Can't you just stay quiet about this? Do you really have to do this? And it's been buried away except that one of the 23 grandchildren sees things in a different way. Mm. And that monumentally surprised me that that happened. But coming back to the starting point of your question, which was Britain and Ireland, you know, right mm. now we have a situation where the British government has made a sort of announcement that it's going to close the door on a whole raft of investigations in relation to the troubles in the north. It's hopeless. You can't do that. It's not how it works. What we know from these stories of a century ago and 70 years ago is that they leave a legacy. They leave a legacy in the second generation, in the third generation, in the fourth generation, and they come back to haunt us and they come back to bite us. And we have to engage with what went wrong and we can't just bury it under the carpet. The secrets of others come back to haunt us. I want to finish up with one more question because the, 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 the book and indeed the podcast um, is called The Rat Line. I listened to the podcast when it must be almost two years or so ago when I came out. It's a terrific listen. And when the book arrived, I thought, oh, that's great. Sure, I know most of it. I've listened to the podcast. But of course, it's possible to give so much more detail. Um, it really is uh, the, the super box DVD set of what I heard in the podcast. It's got so much more detail and rich texture. And as you say, more people came forward and more information came your way um, between the two. And I should say for our listeners that apart from anything else it's a rattling good yarn it's a kind of an adventure story and it's a love story I suppose in one way and it's a story of um, of a man on the run um, Otto spends three years in the in the high Alps on the run from the from the authorities and then ends up in Rome which is the coda to the book I suppose and I'm not going to give anything away because people should read the book obviously there's a there's a there's a really intriguing ending and there's all these nefarious goings on in Rome just a few weeks ago, I think the Vatican decided to yes. uh, release the documents, the archives pertaining to Pius XII, who was the Pope at that time. And there are, have been many questions about the role of the Vatican and the role of the Catholic Church. And some of those questions are touched on in the book. Do you think there'd be more, more information that might be useful to flesh out even further this story? Well, well, the book is really in two parts. I mean, the first part is the historical part, where I use the material to uncover what actually the Vechters were up to until 1945. And then, of course, on the 9th of May 1945, Otto Vechter disappears off the face of the earth. 
He reappears four and a half years later in Rome, in a Vatican hospital, dead. And the second half of the book is what happened in those four and a half years. What was he doing in Rome? Who was looking after him? What was he up to? Where was he hoping to go? Um, And that was a detective story because we had all the material, but a lot of the material was sort of coded. Um, the, the Charlotte and Otto were writing to each other, telling each other what was going on, but they were not being open, shall we say, for reasons that you now, having read the whole book, understand. It's it's complex, um, and it's in the second part really separated. There's the first aspect where Otto disappears and effectively is not living very far from Charlotte above 2,000 metres in the Austrian Alps, hiding with a young Waffen-SS soldier, who, remarkably, I get to meet. Um, That was one of the more surreal meetings I have ever had in my life, to meet a 95-year-old man who was able to look you in the eye and tell you how I helped this man on the run for three years and saved his life. The next part of the story, of course, is Rome. What was he up to? Who was helping him? And that is a story which perhaps in Ireland may garner a particular interest. Um, I'm very careful in my choice of words and language. I, it comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of human individuals. It's, n- it's not black and white. Everything is nuanced. It's not accurate to say that Otto Wächter was helped by the Vatican. Otto Wächter was helped by a small number of elements in the Vatican, and the Vatican itself was divided about how it was going to deal with the legacy of Nazism, a political ideology that it broadly supported because it was anti-communist. That's one of the things I was surprised to come across in the correspondence and in the documents. But as you know from the book, I benefited from marvellous assistance um, in the end from the Vatican, including a particularly wonderful Irish bishop, whose name you may have tracked down in the acknowledgements, um, and who I am due to be interviewing at the Boris House Festival in June, except that I suspect will be pushed back. I think they've got an alternative date. And I want to pay real credit um, to people in the Vatican today who gave me access to things I didn't think I would have access to, who helped me see the one place I really wanted to see. I wanted to see the room where Otto Wächter met his end, because I wanted to get a sense of the atmosphere. And I was helped in that by wonderful Bishop Paul Tigay. So it's a complex story. I hope I've treated it fairly because I want to treat it fairly. Everything turns in the end on a single Austrian bishop who was, it has to be said, at one point very close to Pius XII. And so in answer to your question, yes, I suspect that when... Uh, coronavirus is over and we return to the archives 
material will emerge which will shed light on what Pius XII knew and did and didn't do. But my own sense of it is it's a complex story. It's, it doesn't point only in one direction. And one has to address these matters fairly and honestly. I think it will be painful for some people that he didn't do more, but it will be disappointing for others who seek to point the finger of blame that in fact he did rather a lot more than some of the naysayers like to say. Pius XII was caught in a particular political moment. And of course, what I discovered through the Wächter archive is that Otto was caught also in that political moment. And what we stumble across, what I stumble across, is an, a literally unbelievable alliance between the Vatican, the Americans and former Nazis that you literally, I think, could not invent. Um, I mean, I read mumblings about it, but I had absolutely no idea. But in treating that material, I've wanted to treat it with some circumspection because I think I've only touched the tip of an iceberg. There will be a lot more there and you sort of learn in court that nothing is ever only quite what it seems. It's always more complicated. Philip Sands, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Oh, no, it's terrific to be with you. Absolutely terrific to be with you. The Ratline is published by Wiedenfeld and Nicholson. Thanks to Declan Conlon for producing today. And do remember that if you'd like to support this podcast and the journalism which the Irish Times continues to produce at this difficult time for Irish media, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 